Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our podcast where we talk about new books in media and communication. I am your host, Marcy Maserato, Assistant Professor of Digital Communication at Georgian Court University by the beautiful Jersey Shore. Today's guest is Donald Barclay, uh, the Deputy University Librarian at UC Merced. And the topic of our conversation is his book, Fake News, Propaganda, and Plain Old Lies, How to Find Trustworthy Information in the Digital Age. Welcome, Donald, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Marcy. I'm really happy to be here. Um, now I know that our listeners are, um, would love to know a little bit more about you. So can you give us, um, a back, your, your background, your professional educational background, um, and what you're um, up to these days? Yeah. Um, well, I'm, uh, uh, grew up mostly in Idaho. My dad was in the service when I was younger, so we moved around a little bit. Um, and I went to, um, undergraduate education at Boise State University where I got an English degree. Um, in my younger years, uh, while I was in college and afterwards, I, I worked for the U.S. Forest Service as a firefighter. So I did that and got to travel around the country. Um, in, interesting, exciting job. Uh, then I uh, got a, a master's degree in English at um, University of California, Berkeley. I taught English for four years at Boise State as an adjunct professor. And then I went back to Berkeley and got my library degree in 1990 and became a professional librarian. And I worked at uh, New Mexico State University. And then I worked um, briefly at the University of Houston, and then for several years at the Texas Medical Center in Houston, Texas. And um, then I, in 2002, I came to California to work at the University of California Merced, which in 2002, when I started, hadn't actually been founded yet. We had offices in an old Air Force base, about 10 miles from where the campus is. And that was a really exciting and interesting time because uh, there weren't very many of us at that point. We didn't have our first class of students till 2005. They hadn't started building any buildings. And so our job was, uh, okay, well, invent a library for the 21st century. What's the 21st century academic library supposed to be like? So it was a very interesting time and, and a time to be creative and to really think about where information was and what we, what we could do with the limitations we had of starting from scratch but also what we could do with the advantages we had of being in a digital age when having a million million books or two million books or 10 million books was not necessarily a requisite for a really successful academic library. That's awesome. Uh, so what, what does the 21st century library look like? Well, obviously it's, it's heavily digital. Um, our, our collection of books at UC Merced library is millions and millions of, of digital books. Um, all of our journals are electronic. We never had a traditional periodical room where you, you know, you have magazines and stuff sitting around. Um, so uh, that's an obvious part of it, but books are still really important. Printed books are important. Um, they haven't gone away and I, I don't think they're going away at least not any time. And, you know, in, in soon, I, I think they're going to be around for hundreds of years and it'll still be read because it's a different thing, um, to have a print book. So print is still part of the equation, but it's not the centerpiece it was. The other, the other part of the 21st century library, academic library, and you're seeing this a lot, are academic libraries moving out books that are low use and um, creating more spaces for students to collaborate and use technology. Um, so it's a different kind of a place that's happening, too, as far as the space of the library goes. Yeah, that's really what I've seen when I was like working on my PhD Um and several of my my colleagues um, kind of went into like the the redesigning of the library route mm-hmm. um, for the 21st century. So a lot of it was just the usage of space and um, and kind of you know you have the old school library this idea of like walking through the stacks mm-hmm. and now it's about having kind of you know uh, j- yeah it's a completely just different 
flow of, of information, but also flow of, of students and how they interact with each other and interact with the content. Um, so I do think that's really fascinating. And it's quite a task to really kind of think about that space because um, it's so different from library to library. That's not like this one kind of standard thing that you can do across all libraries. No, and especially because most academic libraries are working from a, a history with lots of books. And sometimes, of course, if librarians start saying, well, you know, we should get some of these books out of here, then some of the old school faculty, especially, or even sometimes the younger faculty, well, oh, no, we can't do that. And, <laughs> you know, and but the truth is, it's always been true that that most of the books in the academic library don't get used or get used very little. So yeah. the trick is, how do we get the right books there? And I think the books are important because they sort of send a message. They're almost symbolic of having some books in the library because um, you don't want it to just turn into, you know, a study hall or a Starbucks or something. You don't want that really. You want it to be a different kind of place. I I compare it to like um, students go to the library like crazy still. You know, all the, the numbers show that academic libraries are used in person more than they ever have been. And I think for students, going to libraries like going to the gym. Yeah, I could work out at home. But I'd work out better and do more when I'm at the gym where everybody else is working out too. Right. Right. Um, I actually I moved to the Jersey Shore from Fresno, California. Oh, so not oh, oh, you're yeah, so not too far away from you. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm very familiar with the Central Valley of California. I'm originally from Southern California, but most recently I was living there and I was actually working while I was working on my PhD, I was working as um, at a pediatric hospital there that actually has uh, ties with UC Merced. So oh, I was yeah. credentialed oh. um, with UC Merced and I had access to, uh, you know, to the library. So as a researcher, that oh. was like amazing to have, you know, you, uh, like a UC Merced, a .edu oh, wow. <laughs> uh, email address. So yeah, right. so I definitely yeah. appreciate the work that, that you do. Um, Cause that, that was just like when they said, Hey, you know, you're going to, you're going to have, uh, you know, research credentials with UC Merced, which is really the UC system yes. was, was amazing. Yeah. yeah so yeah. that's, that's really cool. Um, yeah. So I like that you start your book um, kind of, you know, this idea of, of like, why read a book by a librarian? Mm-hmm. Um, so why should we read a, a book by a librarian? I'll let, I'll let you um, tell our listeners that. Well, I, I think um, that one of the reasons is that librarians think about information a lot. And in my particular specialty that I started with, my specialty was teaching students how to use information and how to find information. That's part of it. But it's also how do you understand, you know, what's credible and not credible, what's appropriate information for this application versus that application. Um, and so I've been I've been in the business really teaching people how to think about credi- the credibility of information since I started. And it used to be an easier job. For example, um, when I first started, when I first was working professionally in 1990, I could say to students, well, if you want to find scholarly journals, just go in the periodical room and look for the things that don't look like magazines that, you know, don't have lots of ads in them and aren't all colorful and on the cover and all that. And that's probably a journal. And that would have information that's probably been peer reviewed and is probably highly credible. Well, you can't say that on the internet. You know, you can't just say, (laughs) you know, there's not a periodical room on the internet. Now, even worse now, now is that there are predatory journals out there, which are journals that look like real journals, but they're just um, for-profit operations where some scholar pays them $1,500 and they put their article in this thing that looks like a scholarly journal, like everything's been peer reviewed and all that. But it's not at all. It's just a money making thing. So it's gotten way harder. That's yeah. that's you know completely. That's periodical. I mean, the predatory journals are a problem completely aside from the completely wacko stuff where crazy people are saying things. These are things that are basically masquerading as serious scholarly journals. So it's it's gotten really complex. So anyway, librarians really think about the quality of information. And you know, back in the in the olden times, um, librarians were gatekeepers. In, in a, to a large extent. Where I went to undergraduate school, there was one academic library in Boise, at Boise State University. To go to another academic library of any size, you know, you probably have to drive to Salt Lake or Portland, hundreds of miles away. So for me as an undergraduate, what was in the, the library at Boise State University was what I could get. And so what the librarians chose to put in there was what I used. And so they could control it. They could make sure that um, some crazy book that 
they thought was just terrible and full of misinformation never made it on the shelf. Of course, that's an age that's long, long gone now. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's becoming increasingly important for us as librarians to help people navigate all this information and, you know, navigate in, a, in sort of the literal sense of how do you find it? You know, well, you can use Google, but there are other ways to find information. You know, what's good about using Google, bad about using Google, what's good about Wikipedia, what you have to watch out for in Wikipedia. But also there's all this other information out there and some of it is not credible at all. Some of it's highly credible. How do you know? And you can't, you don't even have the, the old advantage of, well, here's some information in a book that's well printed and nice type and it's been laid out and edited. And here's something somebody put on a flyer and stuck under your, the uh, windshield wiper in your car. Right. Um, you know, that's pretty easy to make a judgment about that information, but yeah. on the web, it's not, not that easy. Right. Yeah. That's a, that's a great point that you make just the, the physicality of, of the, of actual materials of looking at old school, like period, like journals, like mm-hmm. academic journals versus now them being online. So when you move it, remove it from that physical world, it's kind of, you know, like, well, there was a time where we saw a book and we're like, oh, this is a book. And so this is, you know, there's, there's knowledge and information weight to the content here. Whereas now when that becomes digitized, it's how do you decipher when it can all look the same, very similar in in the surface. So that's, it's a really great point. Your, your book really is very robust. You'd mentioned many things that you talk about in here. Um, and, you know, when I was reading through it, I, I just thought, you know, it, this is a really great guide. It's It goes over so much content in a very, uh, you know, easily digestible format. Um, and you can really kind of go through the different chapters and say, oh, this is what I need assistance with now. And I really see it as a, as a really great book for instructors, for librarians, for students. Um, who did you have in mind when you wrote it? Well... I was really thinking about the average person. I, I didn't want to write a specialist book and, I, and I'm not, you know, I, I, I'm a librarian and I'm, I, I know a lot about information, but I'm not um, an information scientist. I'm not uh, a communications PhD person who mm-hmm. really has studied this stuff up one side and down the other. You know, I've written a dissertation on, a, I've written several books on the subject, so maybe, I, maybe the equivalent, but not quite. <laughs> um, but I was thinking about a book for the average person. I I was also definitely thinking this is a book that could be used in a high school class or a college class. Uh, I was thinking of that audience too. I don't know that I don't know that it's been done yet. If any, you know, um, teachers have picked it up and used it, but I I tried to write it in that level, and I even was careful to use examples that. Well, one of the things I tried to do was to not get political in it. It's not a book where I say, oh the right wing are all a bunch of liars or the left wing are all a bunch of liars, which is there's, if you want books like that, they're all over the place. And, and right. most, <laughs> mo- yeah. most books about fake news are polemics. They're either, you know, the left are all liars or the right are all liars. So I didn't want to do that. And partly because I don't think that was a good approach, but also I wanted a book that any teacher would feel comfortable using because it wasn't polemic. And I was also careful to make sure that it was, the kind of material that would be okay for a high school student, a class, you know, so I didn't use, you know, examples from pornography or something like that, you know, that, right. that would that would make somebody go, Oh, we can't use this in high school. So. Right. Um, and I think that that becomes very clear. I mean, for me, you know, of course, as uh, as someone who teaches digital communication, you know, I'm, I'm definitely seeing this as, as my audience, like I will definitely use your book and I will certainly share it with colleagues right. and librarians at, at my university because I think they will be very excited if they're not already aware of your book because um, it's just, it's a great, it really is. It's a great guide. And, and um, I think a lot of people will appreciate that you didn't go into politics mm. um, because that's not the point that you were wanting to make. You really wanted to focus on the information. Um and I think in terms of, so that kind of brings us to what, where you really start with the book is the, the idea of fake news. So, and, uh, and you definitely kind of talk about that from a, a variety of different contexts and different angles. So can you um, talk a little bit about how you define fake news and, and how you see it playing a part in research and learning and education? Right. And like a lot of people, I, I really hate the term fake news because it's gotten so, you know, watered down and become yeah. almost a meaningless term. Because we know there are certain politicians who 
you know, to them, fake news is anything that criticizes what they do, you know, and we yes. know who those people are. I don't need to name sure. names. Um, and it's been so, you know, so misused and so on. But when I was writing the book, you know, I kind of, my publisher certainly wanted the word fake news in the title. And I understood, yeah, we're going to sell more copies if we call it fake news. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, okay. It's a buzzword. Yeah. Uh, there's, you know, we think about, we think about royalty sometimes when we're writing books, you know, we can't help. Um, but, you know, one, one of the points I try to make in the book, I think you probably picked this up is that a lot of what we call fake news, there's really nothing new about it. Uh, and what I was kind of interested in in the book is what is new, what isn't. So, you know, things like propaganda, we know there are examples of written propaganda that are from 500 BC. Um, there's, you know, we looked all through history, propaganda, propaganda, the Protestant Revolution, uh, Reformation, propaganda, you know, the, the Inquisition, propaganda, Revolutionary War, propaganda, everything, Civil War. You know, I mean, in a way, the Civil War was created by fake news. If you go back and look at newspapers and magazines leading up to the Civil War, the things they were saying about each other and the accusations flying back and forth between the pro-South slavery people and the northern anti-slavery people before and during the war, it's total, total fake news war going on. So some of it is not new, but what is new, of course, is the digital age and the, the ease at which we can share information. And I think I use this example in the book, but I, I just talked about somebody sticking a flyer under your windshield wiper. If you go back to 1980, and you wanted to pr promote a conspiracy theory, let's say, how would you do it? Um, you can't get on TV because you're considered a wacko and there's not that many TV stations and they're just not going to let you go on and do it. You might get on radio, but it may be a radio station. They'd be lucky to be heard across the street when they're broadcasting because their signal's so weak. So what could you do? You go to the copy shop and pay for 500 copies, which is going to cost you some money. And then you're going to have to mail it, which is going to cost you money. Or you're going to have to walk around town sticking it under people's windshield wipers. And how many people are you going to reach? Because most of those pieces of paper are going to get wadded up and thrown in the trash without being read. Right. You know, but it, it was hard to get something out there. But now you go online and you can send tweets all day long. You can have a machine send tweets all day long, the same message over and over and over again. And sure, most of those tweets, almost all of them are going to be totally ignored. But the cost of sending them is almost nothing. And if one of them catches on and one of them takes off and becomes viral, suddenly a million people know about your wacky conspiracy theory. That was pretty much impossible in the 80s. But it's, sure. it's possible now. So the digital world has changed things. Um, but I think one of the things that about fake news that is important to understand is that at least as I see fake news, is that to be fake news, it has to be intentional. There has to be uh, an intent to mislead. And that makes it different than simply information that's a mistake. And so, for example, um, reporters on, on daily newspapers, they have to crank out stories every day, all the time, several stories a day. It's a you know really fast-paced thing. And Sometimes they make mistakes, you know, they put the wrong name in or they get a fact wrong or something like that. And, and if that mistake was made, that's not fake news. That's just a mistake. And, and typically, of course, legitimate news outlets, when they make a mistake and it's called out, they print a retraction and say, oh, we made a mistake. We said it was John Smith when it was actually Jane Doe. We apologize. Whereas fake news outlets you know, and misleading people never almost never go back on what they say. They always stick to what they said. Um, but that's not fake news. Now, if a reporter knowingly says Jane Smith when he knows it was really John Doe and, and prints it anyway, of course, that is fake news. And, and reporters sometimes do indulge in that, and newspapers do indulge in that. We know that. But that's a difference between the intention. It, it really has to have the intention there to be considered, to, for me to consider it fake news. Yeah, and I think you know, for me, when I was when I was teaching uh, some journalism classes last year, one of the common questions from students, who are often very distrustful of the media and mm -hmm. news media in particular, um, because they simply don't know who to believe. They simply don't know who to you know follow uh, if they if they want to just follow news outlets on Instagram or on social media. They just are so confused, and they're like, "Well, how do you find some you know a news outlet that's unbiased and neutral?" 
And that's a really like hard question to answer because you can say, well, you know, NPR is criticized for having a liberal bias or Fox News for being you know, very conservative. And so you, you to separate the journalism from the politics uh, becomes a, a challenge. And certainly, um, as you mentioned, you were just talking about the intent. And so I, I you know, work and, and talk to students about this idea of real fake news, you know, fake news that's intentionally falsified information, Mm -hmm. which you talk about in the book, and you were just talking about now just versus, you know, unintentionally false news, uh, you know, false information. And, um, and so I think, you know, for example, for me as a professor guiding students to understand the difference in understanding for intent and looking at outlets that may be more on the intentional side versus others, because they find it really aggravating because they want to be engaged. And they want to be able to find good information, but I think they just become exhausted and just disillusioned that they can't. And so how do you, um, as a librarian, how do you help instructors or students combat that kind of fatigue when it comes specifically to to attempt to search for just good information, particularly in a news outlet? Right. Well, there's there's a couple of things going on there. And, And one of them is, of course, that there's very little relatively little information is 100% false and very little information is 100% true. You know, most information is somewhere on a scale of credibility from very low credibility to very high credibility. And all information is created by human beings. And as we know, human beings are not perfect. We, we are not flawless creatures. So, you know, we look at scientific information and COVID-19 is a great example. You know, there's a lot of highly credible scientific information out there. And because COVID-19 is a fast moving thing and, you know, there's a lot to learn about it. And, and you know, people are finding stuff out about it all the time that the scientific information is maybe a little bit wobbly because it's like, well, we think this is happening. Oh, no, we just found something else out. But the part part of the purpose of science is that it's always looking you know, it's always willing to change based on the evidence. And sometimes people see that as a weakness, like, oh, well, the scientists said one thing one day, and then they changed their mind the next day, they must not know what they're talking about. Well, no, it's because even though their information is extremely credible, and based on the best evidence, it's not 100% gold plated, perfect. And that's what you'll see when people criticize science, you know, they'll pick out one little thing, and and just focus on that that was wrong or that they changed their mind on and claim, oh, the whole thing is a house of cards. Well, it's not. It's highly credible. Um, on the other hand, you have people running around saying, you know, things like, well, if you drink lots of water, you won't get COVID. Well, that's not credible at all. There's no evidence to support that whatsoever. Um, but if you, you know, you can't demand 100% perfection in information. And there's always going to be some bias in information. And people are have feelings, people see the world in certain ways. And, you know, you could claim, you know, somebody could even say, well, the fact that you are a scientist shows your bias because you accept the scientific method. And and that right. could be seen as a bias. Well, I think that's a, a really reasonable and smart bias to have, especially, sure. you know, when you're trying to <laughs> understand the world based on observation and evidence, that's, that's the best way we have to do it. But even the scientific method is not perfect. It's not like, you know, some purpose, you know, God, creator of the universe, who knows all, sitting there saying, this is how it is. It's people saying, this is the best evidence we have. This is what the evidence is telling us. So we think this is the best thing to do. And 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 so I think the problem that, that you run into um, with people being disillusioned is that it's really good to be skeptical. It's good to question everything, you know, whether it's from a scientist or something that your aunt sent you through Facebook. It's really good to go, is this, is this accurate? Is there other information that contradicts this? Is there other information that supports it? Um, you know, are there errors? And, of course, one of the problems with science information for a lot of us is, you know, I could go to the journal article and I can read it and I kind of understand it, but I don't 100% understand it because I'm not a, uh, an immunologist. And there's all these terms in there and numbers and statistics and maybe I don't really know, you know, I'm looking at the methodology section of the journal article, and I don't really, really understand it. I have to kind of take it on faith that, that the scientist is, is being honest. Whereas another scientist might look at it and go, oh, well, you know, you're, um, 
your power ranking here that you did in your statistics is off, and that's and so your findings are not really valid. Um, but you know, again, that's that's how science works. But the the problem, of course, is that we can get you know being skeptical is good. You know, asking is this good information is good, but becoming cynical is is really bad. To where you just go, well, <laughs> it's all lies. Everybody's a liar. The newspapers are liars. Fox News is liars. NPR is liars. The scientists are liars. Alex Jones is a liar. Uh, the anti-vaxxers are a liar, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not going to believe any of it, but where does that leave you? How do you make decisions that are good decisions without any information? You're relying entirely on yourself. And, you know, as somebody who's been around a while, I can tell you, as much as you may love yourself and think that you're great, you're not, you're not perfect. You're not capable of making all your decisions just based on your gut instincts. And there's a really interesting book that I'm reading called um, Fast Thinking, Slow Thinking by Daniel Kahneman, who is a psychologist who won the Nobel Prize for Economics, actually. And Kahneman talks about this, about how um, people, and he first came to this back in the 70s. He is the person who, um, he and his partner, Amos Stravesky, came up with the idea of cognitive bias in the, in the early 70s. And they got to it by watching how bad people are at at statistics and probability and they would ask these fairly simple probability questions of students and the students would almost always get them all wrong because people don't even people who know statistics don't always apply it you know when they see things and are making decisions and so Travesky and and uh, Kahneman came up with this this idea of, that we use heuristics which are shortcuts where we kind of get the information but we don't analyze it thoroughly and we make decisions based on these heuristics. And in general, that works pretty well. But a lot of times it leads us to make really bad decisions. And, and we also have a tendency that is something you probably know of called the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is a, um, an idea that was created in the 90s. Um, and the basic idea of the Dunning-Kruger effect is that when people don't know something very well, they have a lot of confidence that they're good at it. And then as they um, learn more about what they think they know a lot about, their confidence drops. And then as they get better, their confidence starts to rise again. Right. You know, for example, I'll give you a quick example. If you've never ever played a stick and ball game and you go to a, a, a professional baseball game and the, the outfielders are warming up in the outfield and you're watching them catch fly balls, it looks really easy. And you'd think, you might think, I could go out there and do that. But of course, if you've never played baseball or any kind of stick and ball game, and you go out in the outfield with those outfielders and they start hitting those fly balls to you, you quickly discover, oh, I'm not very good at this at all. And your confidence <laughs> quickly drops. Sure. And that's what happens with things like, you know, understanding information or, oh, I understand immunology, right? I know what I know what germs are, you know, and so I can make up my own mind about COVID-19. Well, probably not. You're probably not as good at it as you think you are. Yeah. And you, and you mentioned in the book in, in terms of being an expert, you know, if you're an expert in, in one thing, it doesn't mean that your expertise kind of goes on to other things, right, right. Which, which seems to so often happen again in the digital world. Um, and I think, you know, the, the point that you made that I, I really, that I appreciate, but also really stressed with my students is really the, the difference between being skeptical and being cynical, because it really is important to be critical consumers of information and media. But that means that you're coming at it from a, you know, a skepticism standpoint of, you know, of, of any news outlet or any outlet. You can't just blindly trust everything because there are human beings behind that information and they do make mistakes. Yeah. You know, it's like you can look at uh, you know, the Washington Post or the New York Times, well, they've had their scandals and their issues oh, too. Sure. Right. So, uh, so because if we, when we start going into the cynicism, then yeah, then it becomes a very, it's not a good, it's a really terrible lens to, to be looking at yeah. anything in life with. So, um, and I think it is important to, to think about, uh, you know, not being experts ourselves and and you and you do break down kind of like logical fallacies and talking about confirmation bias, which is another really, um, you know, f f like buzzword yes, <laughs> recently yeah. with the whole the idea of fake news and, and confirmation bias and, and things like that. Um, you do talk about, uh, so you do uh, talk a lot about logical fallacies, um, more tools of deception. I'm um, mm -hmm. in chapter four. Um, can you talk more about that uh, in specifically in, in relating to how can we combat that in 
day to day? Well, you know, I think we we have to start by taking responsibility for ourselves. That's the first thing we can do. Because one of the things we, you know, we've it's been made very clear in the digital age and in the fake news age and in the quote post-truth world that we're living in is that trying to change somebody else's mind can be extremely difficult. Because when people make up their mind about something, it's almost as if more evidence doesn't change them. You know, they people tend to stick to their guns to a really strong extent. And people have, you know, have outlooks on the world that really shape their thinking. And people have developed these heuristics, these shortcuts for thinking about things, you know. And um, so it can be really, really hard to change those things. So we have to start by being responsible to, for ourselves. And I think the way to be responsible, one way to be responsible for ourselves is to understand things like logical fallacies, which is a great example of how fake news isn't new, because a lot of these logical fallacies, as I mentioned in the book, have Latin names because they've been around since people were, the Latin was the lingua franca of scholars. So they're right. well known, they've been around and you can go back, you know, and read stuff from the Protestant Reformation and you'll see the exact same logical fallacies, you know, being applied as people try to convince people that the Pope is evil or the Martin Luther is a monster or whatever, you know, yeah. whatever side they're on. Um, but um, yeah, the, I think the thing we can do is if we understand more about them and in the book, I talk about a lot of the major ones, but there's way more than that I could talk about in the book. Um, but if we understand how they work, we understand how people use them to try to control us and try to c- persuade us. And, you know, of course they're really popular in propaganda. You know, the Nazis were famous for, uh, you know, twisting people's minds by using these tricks of logic. So to just be aware of them and to understand, okay, well, you know, this person, this candidate is saying all the things, terrible things about the person who's running against him, but, you know, calling him all kinds of names and stuff. But, you know, what what's the real issue here? You know, is it is it that maybe both of these candidates are kind of could be called rotten people in a lot of ways. They've done bad things. So maybe that's the attacking the person isn't really the issue, you know, or you know, the issue is, you know, uh, whether the, you know, whether that we should be in quarantine on COVID-19 and, and people, uh, you know, in California, maybe somebody's saying, well, you know, Gavin Newsom cheated on his wife. Well, maybe he did. And maybe that's a bad thing to do, but that doesn't have anything to do with this, <laughs> with keeping yourself <laughs> safe from COVID-19. Right. Uh, yes. You know, or, or, you know, conversely people saying, well, you know, Donald Trump had all these wives and apparently he's this terrible womanizer. Well, what does that have to do with COVID-19 or the border wall or, you know, any other issue that, that he's been involved with? In, in a way, nothing. Now, you could say, well, character matters. Yeah, well, if you want to talk about character, then we can talk about that. But if we're talking about the border wall or whether or not there was proper pr- preparation for the COVID-19 coming to the country, Donald Trump's character, in a way, doesn't matter. That, that doesn't change the issue. And somebody's character doesn't change the facts. You know, right. even, even if you like somebody a lot, it doesn't change the fact that they did this or they did that or this happened and that happened. So, you know, the, the ad hominem attack, attacking a person is one that you see a, a lot. But you also, you know, there's there's many others where, you know, they try to basically try to drag you your mind away from the, the facts and what's really happening and, and get you off in another direction, you know, Um so just being aware of them and, and thinking about them and, and understanding when people are using them, because people use them all the time. And it's just part of trying to be a persuasive speaker or writer. But if you understand they're, they're being used on you, then you can you can step aside and, and keep your mind a little clearer. It's not easy because, you know, all of us have um, our own way of seeing the world and we have our own points of view and we all, you know, I think everybody who has any kind of political feelings knows that it's a lot easier to be, to believe and accept when someone's saying political things that you agree with than it is when somebody's not, you know, that it's, it's really easy for someone who agrees with me to persuade me that they're right than for someone who doesn't agree with me to persuade me that they're right. And my mind is way open, way more open to someone who agrees with me than to someone who is not, who does not. Right. And that's definitely, you know, in, in politicians, the, the issue of, for example, like morality and in terms of, um, you know, whether or not that particular individual, sure, it talks about character, but you're right in the sense of, you know, like Bill Clinton was, um, 
you know, what, what did he really get in trouble for is really the lying, (laughs) you know, it's looking at the behavior. Okay. Well, do you want a president who lies um, publicly and et cetera, versus things that are done in their personal lives? Or, you know, when you have a president that's kind of thinking out loud about, you know, possibly injecting disinfectant into your body. And then the whole scientific community just freaks out um, (laughs) in terms of, okay, well, what's happening? Because, there, you know, it, it, it does become dangerous depending on who's saying what. Because yeah. um, certainly, if you are a world leader and you're thinking out loud and what you're sharing, um, although you're not a, a physician or a scientist in any way, but that people will put weight on it based on your position. Yeah. So that's where it gets, you know, it, it does get tricky because then some people will be like, oh, hey, look, this is what he said. Uh, you know, and that, of course, that's one example. And and I mean, we could you could apply your, your book for politics t- till the end of time, yeah. <laughs> um, which yeah. is which would be a very exhausting task. Right. Um, I think one of the uh, one of the the chapters that I really really liked uh, was chapter three, where you actually start the chapter with a really humorous example of how you've been fooled. Oh yeah. Um, so you talk about tricks of the trade and techniques that lower your information guard. Yeah. So can you um, can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that and what that looks like? Well, it's in a way it, a lot of it has to do with appealing to your emotions. That we're all you know we all have feelings about things and. And so if someone can get to us on an emotional level, it can cause us to not think so critically about what we're, we're seeing. And a great example, a non-political example is all the time is advertising. You know, they, advertisers try to appeal to our emotions constantly, you know, and for example, you know, um, there's a, you know, oh, there's a scene with a, a mother and a kid and they're playing tinkly piano music and they're saying all these wonderful words about the love of a mother and a child, blah, 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 blah. And then they say, buy Pampers, you know, well, (laughs) what does the love of a child and a mother have to do with Pampers? Nothing. You know, I mean, to some extent, I, I, I'm a parent my kids are older now. Thank goodness. I don't deal with diapers, but to me, you know, diapers were pretty much diapers, you know, I mean, there wasn't a lot of difference, but but, you know, when they appeal to your emotion and get you all worked up, you sort of forget about what you're seeing. And, of course, you know, cigarette ads were great for this because cigarette yeah. ads were never, you know, you're probably too young to remember when they were on TV, but you've seen the print ones. But, you know, they were never about smoking cigarettes. They were about having fun, you know, riding in speedboats and hanging out with good looking people and dancing and, you know, and, oh, man, all your emotions of joy and a good time is like cools or marlboros or whatever they were selling you know marlboros was all about being a rugged individualist out there on your horse right you know in a cowboy outfit chasing cattle over the wide open plains you know it wasn't about smoking <laughs> you know it made you forget what it was about and and that's how a lot of this stuff works so you know the major emotions one of them is joy if something can make you really happy it makes you forget and you know i would say part of the success of donald trump is when he gets up and he says to the people who like him, we're going to build this wall. It's going to make our country safe. We won't have to worry about illegal immigrants and blah, 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 blah. They get really happy about that. It makes them really happy. And it makes them not question things like, well, will the wall really keep people out? Are illegal immigrants <laughs> such a problem that it's worth putting all that money into a wall? Um, does the wall send the wrong message to the world about what America is? You know, all these other questions that you might really want to analyze. And I'm not, you know. If you love the wall, you love the wall. If you hate it, you hate it. But, you know, if if the reason you love it is it just makes you feel good, maybe that's not the best reason. It's sort of like, uh, you know, anything like that, that that appeals to your joy can make you forget to analyze things. Similarly, you know, when something makes you feel really smug, and you see this all the time in social media, oh, those stupid liberals, blah, 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 blah. Well, I'm not a stupid liberal. I really, this makes me feel really good because I was right all along and those stupid liberals were wrong all along. You know, it, it makes you feel satisfied. And yeah. You don't stop to really think about, well, did the stupid liberals really say that? Did they really do that? Or were they wrong in doing that? Well, you know, even ask the question, well, obviously all liberals aren't stupid, just like all conservatives aren't stupid. That's crazy because we know there are really smart conservatives and really smart liberals in the world. Sure. Well, obviously. Yeah, um, of course. <laughs> you know, and, Statistically uh, speaking, what you talk about statistics too, even. Yeah, well, <laughs> And so, you know, that kind of that kind of playing on your emotions. But the other big ones are fear, which is if they can make you scared. Oh, my God, there's millions of gangbangers coming from Central America. we got to build a wall. Oh, I'm scared. 
Um, or, oh, you know, and people can make this accusation. Oh, they're, tr- they're, talk- they're talking up COVID because they're just trying to scare you because they want to control you. There's a little bit of truth to that. I'm not saying that's 100% untrue. You know, and, and to say that there's no politics in the pro-COVID side and it's only in the anti-COVID side, not true because people are people and they will take advantage of situations. Now, personally, I believe COVID's a serious threat. I'll, t- I'll say that right now. I think we should be in quarantine. But the idea that maybe people have overstated a little bit in some cases is probably some truth there. But anyway, fear is a way to get you to go. And the other way that really gets you to let down your guard is when it makes you angry. Oh, my God. I'm so mad. Look what they did. You know, I, and you don't even stop to think about, did they really do it? Did they really say it? Is there another way of looking at what they did to consider, you know, um, Donald Trump makes me so mad because he's deporting all these people and he's so cruel. And it makes me forget that, well, actually under Obama, there was a lot of deportations. The Obama administration deported millions of people. So what's the difference really? But I don't think that because I'm so mad at Donald Trump for, deporting Mexicans that I forget that that Obama did it too. Yeah, I think you know that, that's another point I stress with my students is really not glorifying people um, yeah. or things. You know, when we when we get into on any side, when you start getting into the um, spectrum of fanaticism, yeah. you're in trouble. Right. Because then right. you start thinking that everything that every one, you know, that everything's okay on that side. Well, it's right. like, well, if you take someone to the extreme left or someone to the extreme right, they kind of start meeting each other in the form of terrorism because right. you can have terror on both sides. Exactly. Um, and, and so my, my students, uh, I will often, uh, you know, kind of pick on Disney, um, because, you know, they have a very long complex history yes. and, and if we are just going to think about Disney, uh, just in a very superficial way, then we're really missing, you know, the, the fact that they have been remarkably racist yeah. um, in the past and have have made grotesquely racist films and things that are sexist and misogynist. And um, they learn from those mistakes. They definitely listen to their audiences, which is good because that's what we need to do is provide feedback so that, uh, you know, companies and people and governments, organizations, whatever go, Oh, okay. You're right. That's, that's not good. Let's not do that anymore. But that doesn't mean that it hasn't happened. So we really need to look at the complexities and the nuances of any information that's in front of us. Um, so some of my students will just be like, oh, well, why do you hate Disney? I'm like, I don't. <laughs> it's not about hating Disney. I don't have any problem with going to Disneyland. But if we're, you know, it kind of gets to the level, just don't drink the Kool-Aid. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to understand what's in front of you. And to your point about advertising, that's very true because so much advertising appeals directly to feelings and emotions mm-hmm. and making you want something that you don't need at all. Right. right. You know, keeping up with the Joneses and, and Mad Men. Uh, the show, there's a, there's a great example that I actually, when I teach a visual communication course, we talk a lot about commercials and we spend a lot of time talking about that kind of feeling and manipulation. And there's this uh, short clip where uh, Don Draper is selling Kodak's carousel. Uh-huh. And I, I, are you familiar with the show? Have you seen yeah, it? I know the show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just this episode where you know, obviously they're an advertising company and they're wanting to get uh, Kodak's business. And, you know, and that is what it's called when you, when you think about the slide projector, it's called a carousel. And you're like, and you know, just this idea of a carousel of memories and the way that he sells it, it's just absolutely brilliant. Oh yeah. And, and it's, and it's terrifying at the same time (laughs) because you're like, oh my gosh, that is, that is amazing what he just did with like, they couldn't come up with like, how do you, how do you make this look glamorous? Yeah. You know, well, um, so it's a, it was a great, brilliant example. So very much, very much so the advertising does that constantly. There's, there's a really brilliant book that uh, if you ever could get him to do your show, he'd be a great person to interview. It's called The Myth of Choice. And it's by a legal professor named Kent Greenfield, who's at Boston, okay. at Boston University. But it's a real, it's a small book. It's a philosophy book, really. But he talks about how, we, we like to think that we have all this choice. And we've been hearing a lot about that in COVID-19, about freedom and individuality and people marching around with guns. And, you know, nobody can tell me what to do. I'm a free individual. But Greenfield in his book, Myth of Choice, does a really good job of saying, well, you know, we're not as free to choose as we like to think we are. And he talks about how manipulated we are. And, you know, the, for example, you know, um, 
it, somebody's, you know, like, well, I'm a free individual and I drive a pickup truck and, and I love the NFL and, you know, blah, 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 blah. It's like, yeah, but you know what? If you were the exact same person, you've been born in France, you wouldn't be driving a pickup truck and you wouldn't love the NFL, you know? <laughs> and there are cultures where eating dog is perfectly normal, where in our culture, it's horrifying. There are cultures where, of course, where eating pork is disgusting. There, I mean, obviously Jewish culture right in the United States, but you don't have to look far. But, you know, to other people, eating pork is like, well, only three times a day, you know, sure, yeah. <laughs> um, but that's not free choice. That's, that's totally built into our, you know, our culture and who we are. And so um, anyway, the, the idea that, that we're so free to choose, and, and it's kind of interesting, you know, we're talking about Disney, but when you think of, about the entertainment industry as a whole, uh, Hollywood, as, as you know, the, the, the word we use to describe it all, you know, the, one of the things you hear from conservatives is, oh, liberal Hollywood, we hate liberal Hollywood, you know, blah, 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 blah. But if you really stop and think critically about Hollywood, especially Hollywood of the last 30 years, it's like conservatives couldn't have a better friend in the world than Hollywood because the story they keep telling us over and over and over again is a story about the rugged individual doing what he, usually he, sometimes her, wants without regard to what everybody else thinks. How many times has Hollywood told us a story of all the scientists in the world think one thing, but this one other scientist doesn't, and he's always right. Of course he's always right, because he's the hero. Right. You know? And who's going to save us? I mean, I find it absurd that we have this Kino Reeves, who's allegedly a really nice person, and he's he's very zen-like, and he helps people, and he does all this stuff. And he's like this really cool guy. And he makes these John Wick movies where he just murders people because he's mad at them because they killed his dog. What kind of message is that? What kind of liberal <laughs> message is uh, John Wick movies? And I know a lot of people watch those movies and they, they realize their fantasies and they go, okay, I, I got my murder fantasy out and I'm fine. And maybe, maybe it helps some people be more peaceful, you know, in a sure. way. But sure, the, yeah, idea, no, yeah. the idea that, you know, that liberal Hollywood is – somehow socialist, communistic, they're the opposite of that. Their story, for the, at least for the last 30 years and probably longer than that, is it's all about the individual, and a lot of times it's about making money. And, and that story gets told over and over and over again. And a lot of people who, I think, consider themselves enemies of Hollywood and free-thinking Americans are way more influenced by Hollywood and that film story that gets told over and over again than they, they realize. Yeah, I mean, Hollywood, you know, that's, uh, again, it's a completely different, uh, another show dedicated yeah, just well, to talk sure. about that, right? right. <laughs> but no, I, the the narrative, this the standard kind of narrative structure of film uh, within the, the Hollywood standard, it, it just, it hasn't changed and it doesn't change. You know, there's, if it makes money, it's going to be made and it's going to be made over and over again. How many Transformer films do we have? Right. And how many Marvel movies do we have? Yeah. And absolutely, you can you can take that kind of narrative structure, beginning, middle, end. You know, you have the peak, you have the good guy, the bad guy, the happy ending, things like that. I mean, you can apply that um, that kind of skeleton to so many films. And and yeah, and, and you're right. Like, what is that message? You know, when we think about uh, Quentin Tarantino's film Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, mm -hmm. was remarkably popular, and it definitely has kind of tropes within the tropes because they're talking about things, you know, he's, it's like an homage to these old school films. It's really uh, meta. It's a very meta film. It is very meta as, <laughs> as Quentin Tarantino is. And so there's certainly plenty of things to appreciate it from a, from a film studies perspective. Yeah. But, but yeah, if you're just consuming this content passively, it does get very tricky because you almost don't even realize that the subliminal message is the same over and over and over and over again. Right. Um, and, you know, and you can see things, you know, Harvey Weinstein finally uh, going to jail for what he's done. And then, you know, that's sadly, that is something that has a little, has a long history in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And then what about those that are not in Hollywood, but about the farming community in California and elsewhere yeah. and, yeah. you know, women who definitely don't even have the voice. If it's, if it's that difficult for individuals who have some level of voice power and money to come out and say, imagine every, everyone else. So, right. so I think it's also looking at, you know, these things are so complex and they, they run so deep and, 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 you know, the history of, because Hollywood can't just all of a sudden start making films that are not formulaic. Yeah, right. Right? right. <laughs> like well, Harvard, yeah. 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 Well, I think a lot of, you know, it's important to remember that part of our fake news is entertainment. 
Yes. And it's not separate. And we may think it is. And and I'm not saying video games call its people to kill. You know, I don't I'm not, I don't believe that, you know. But we do get these messages. And, you know, I, I, I have this theory that a lot of people who, who really like Donald Trump look at Donald Trump and they see Tony Stark. And a lot of people who hate Donald Trump look at him and see Lex Luthor, you know, yeah, uh, because that that's where a lot of our, our images of who people are are created are in those in the, the popular media, popular films, television, all these things we consume. No, absolutely. Popular culture is incredibly powerful. Mm-hmm. And um, and as somebody who researches popular culture and teaches popular culture, um, you know, I definitely want my students to, to understand and to know those messages. Uh, last, I think it was last spring semester, I assigned, I created a, a brand new assignment for this course called Mass Media and Social Issues. And basically it just talked about media manipulation. And so mm-hmm. I had students talk about describe how they're manipulated by the media and what they can do to combat it. Mm -hmm. And what was the most fascinating thing about that project is students were like, but I'm not manipulated by the media. They couldn't get to the how (laughs) because they thought they weren't. And I was like, no, 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 no. (laughs) You know, they just couldn't. It was, it was fascinating to see that like in mass, they're like, no, but I'm not manipulated. Yeah. Right. And we all are. And one of the things I tell people when I, when I talk about stuff is, I talk about all these ways we get tricked in fake news. Hey, it happens to me all the time too. And I'm pretty savvy about it. I I have emotions. I have feelings. I know that because of my political beliefs, I tend to believe things without questioning enough and disbelieve other things without really examining enough. I know that happens to me. I know I get angry about, I read about something political or social or whatever that makes me mad. And I know my guard goes down. And I know I have cognitive biases and, and all these things. And so it happens to everybody because, again, just like the information is not perfect, it's created by human beings, it's imperfect. Well, our response to it is a human response and our responses are not perfect. We're not, you know, uh, data from Star Trek where everything's, you know, perfectly logical. And we're just a computer brain. We, we don't work that way. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, you made that point earlier, just that we, it start with, it starts with ourselves. And I yeah. think it's really important to, with everything that you talk about, um, in this, uh, really great book that you've, that you've you. um, written here is that it really is, it's humans. We are human, humans make mistakes. And so we have to continue challenging and being skeptical, but not being negative and cynical because that won't get us anywhere. Right. And, and, you know, again, if we, if we dismiss anything that doesn't meet some kind of imaginary gold standard, we're really doing ourselves a disservice. The other thing that we, I really encourage people to be careful about is we want to check ourselves, but we also want to be really, really careful before we share information with other people that people that we know, because whether we realize it or not, we have influence on the people around us. And, um, you know, we can, we can find our because we know and trust somebody. There's somebody I work with who I really like, and we've known each other for years, and we have a great working relationship. His politics are very different than mine, and he, sometimes he says things that if a stranger on the street said, or I read it on social media, I'd be furious. Right. But because he's my friend, I go, I listen to him, and I go, hmm, well, that's an interesting idea, you know. Um, and it's because I know and trust him, and I know he's, you know, he's different than me, but he's a good person. Um, and so we have to, but what we have to be careful about is that as we don't share bad information with people, we don't see something that makes us angry and we immediately send it to 20 of our friends. Can you believe what these knuckleheads have done? Look at this terrible thing. And then to our embarrassment, or maybe not to our embarrassment, because some people don't care. We find out a couple of days later that, oh, that wasn't even true. That didn't really happen. You know? Um, yeah. That's... Or it was manipulated. It was, you know, uh, it was falsified. And, you know, all, of course, you know, you're probably familiar. There's a famous photo from the Vietnam War of the chief of police of, Viet, of um, Saigon summarily executing a Viet Cong person yes. with a pistol. Yes. And yep. it's a horrifying photo. It is. And, um, you know, it's it's an interesting photo because it was presented and, and a lot of, for years, you know, people talked about what a horrible thing it was that this – you know, what happened. And it is horrible. I'm not saying it wasn't horrible, but then, you know, in more recent years, it's come out that, um, there was more to the story that this person he shot was a, um, was a Viet Cong operative and he, and this person had just murdered an entire family, including some children. Right. 
And so, oh, well, there's really more to the story. It doesn't necessarily justify shooting him dead in the street, but it makes it a little different story than it's just some poor guy walking down the street and the chief of police of Saigon just decided to shoot him in the head. You know, it's a more complex story. And, you know, that's what happens a lot in social media. You'll see these images. There's a very famous meme out there of a young woman. She's blonde. She's, her hair is kind of in dreadlocks. She's got wire rim glasses. She's wearing a floppy cap. She's kind of a hippie looking person. And she shows up in social media being attacked as a social justice warrior and a hypocrite and a, a phony and and um, naive and all this stuff and being attacked in conserv- by conservatives. And it's all based on how she looks. Uh, the people who say these things and, and enjoy you know, seeing her demeaned have no idea who she is. And, and as far I've done some research, as far as I know, she's never been identified as who she is. Nobody knows what she thinks. She could be a college Republican. She's probably not based on the way she looks, but she could be. But people jump to all these conclusions about her based on one photo without <laughs> any other information or any context. You know, she's at some kind of an event. It could be a concert. It could be a protest. You know, uh, it could be a church service. We don't know what she's doing, really. We yeah. don't know what she thinks. But people jump to all these conclusions. And, you know, you see the same sort of thing, obviously, when people jump to the conclusion, here comes a dark-skinned man, he's dangerous, or here's somebody applying for a job and they've got a deep southern accent, they're probably stupid and they're probably a racist, you know? Yeah, just the stereotypes and, and right. the and That's a kind of heuristic, again, going back to Daniel Kahneman's shortcuts that we use. We don't take time to get all the information, so we make a shortcut based on our experience. And heuristics can be fine. And sort of in the, you know, if you look at heuristics from an evolutionary perspective, if you're an hominid living in the jungle and you see something that looks like there might be a big cat up there waiting for you and you immediately respond by screwing up a tree, well, even if you're wrong, even if it wasn't a big cat, that was the right thing to do because you're going to survive the one time when it is a big cat. Right. So in the jungle, it works. In the, in the hominid world, it works. But it doesn't work so well in a modern world with lots of information and where we have all these, you know, different different ways of trying to process information. Yeah, absolutely. I think just the idea of, of a civilized society is, is the reason that we, you know, there's, there's like evolutionary ideas again, for the shortcuts of why we, why stereotypes exist, but we're not tribal in the sense yeah. that we need that for survival because we are, you know, a, a modern civilized society. So those things become very dangerous. Right. And, and when you put them online, it's even worse. And, and in most cases we do have time to think about things, you know, most of yeah. our, most of our decisions are not, oh, if I don't decide in five seconds, I'm going to get eaten by a tiger. You know, um, and, and, <laughs> exactly. and that's one of the keys of dealing with, with, with false fake information is if you can take the time, and most of the time you can, to think about it, even if all you do is let it cool off, sleep on it, you know, before you decide to share it. Um, let your anger or your joy or your fear subside a little bit before you make a decision based on that information. Because in the end of the day, what is information for? Information helps us make decisions. We want to make good decisions about everything. Whether you're liberal, conservative, don't care, you want to make good decisions. Good information helps you make good decisions. So you want to try to base your decisions on the best information you can find. That's what it boils down to. Yeah, absolutely. I I totally agree. Um, Donald, uh, we've taken up a lot of your time, but as we wrap up, um, can you, um, what are you currently working on? Okay, well, I'm working on another book. My, My publisher convinced me to, to write another book. And uh, I'm, I'm actually, it's kind of an extension of fake news, propaganda, plain old lies. This book is about the post-truth world. And, okay. and it's more, I would describe it um, more philosophical. Fake news, propaganda, plain old lies is more kind of a how-to, like a manual for dealing with it, with fake, with bad information or misinformation. The next one is more philosophical. I'm thinking about kind of bigger questions about why do we why do we think the way we do why do we process information the way we do you know looking at philosophy psychology economics uh history all these things that influence us in how we think about information so i'm working on it i i think it's going to be a harder book to write than the than the one i just (laughs) published but uh we'll see it's either it it could be terrible it could be great i don't know we'll we'll see how I, i never know how these things come out I, I think it'll be, I think it'll be just fine. I think okay. it'll, um, I, I, I look forward to it. And then I look okay. forward to having you back on the show to oh, talk wonderful. about. Well, I, I'd love to come back. <laughs> um, yeah. I thank you again. Done. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think it'll be great. Um, I think that's uh, that's a kind of a natural transition into that. So um, thank you again for joining us, Donald. Um, and thank you to all of our listeners. We will see you next time and stay safe and sane out there. Cheers. Thank you, Marcy. Yes. Yes.